Greetings, puny humans. This is Morbo, the newscaster. I am pleased, yet sticky, to tell you that you are listening to the power of positive geeking. I will destroy you! Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Power of Positive Geeking. We're going to help you fall in love with movies all over again. My name is Corey Morissette, and I am joined tonight by my good friend. Uh, he's an EMT. He's a master magician. He's a balloon twister. He's a game show host. He's an author. There's nothing this guy can't do. His name is Richie Roy. How's it going today, Richie? Man, it's going great because I have actually had a chance to watch some movies during this whole time being at home. So... I caught up on a lot of things, and I'm ready to chat about whatever we're talking about tonight, man. That's fantastic. Uh, Richie actually has uh, hosted a movie review show with me for uh, 12 seasons now, I think. We're going into season 13 here right away uh, for a long, long time anyway, and uh, I couldn't think of a better person to bring on to talk about our movie for tonight, and that is Back to the Future Part 3. Uh, why Part 3? Because that is consensus usually says that's the worst one of the three and i disagree i love this movie i love this whole trilogy there's not a bad movie in there but part three is so magical and so wonderful and richie roy is just about the biggest back to the future fan i know richie maybe tell us a little bit about how uh how much back to the future means to you well i've watched the movie well over 100 times that's a fact uh back to the future part two I will say is my favorite sequel out of any trilogy out of any saga and back to the future part three in my personal opinion is the most complete western movie you can watch with a family if you want to get your kids interested in 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 riding horses and shoot them up cowboy stuff it is absolutely awesome on so many different levels and it's pretty incredible when you think about how they meshed sci-fi with western and they pulled it off seamlessly so uh, i'm ready to talk about it man let's get into it it really is a fantastic western and doesn't get enough credit for that i was just watching a behind the scenes clip with steven spielberg and he says i would put the western portion of back to the future 3 up against any other uh western it, it, you know in terms of uh story in terms of uh production design like you really go through and watch the western stuff in, in back to the future three the production design on that whole uh, hill valley in 1885 was absolutely amazing uh yeah, and, you know what it was pretty incredible because they filmed that in the same place that they filmed uh pale rider yep. if you remember that classic one which is funny because when back to the future was released pale rider was the number one movie at the time and back to the future knocked it off which right. is pretty funny yeah but there's a lot of references to these old classic westerns especially ones with clint eastwood in it and when you're a hollywood fan and when you, when you know these guys and you you know the the actors and the bit parts that are in there like the three drunks that are sitting in the bar those guys were the drunks in every cowboy and western film the guy who played the bartender was also the bartender in an old uh, Clint Eastwood one as well too, Outlaw Josie Wales. He was the bartender in that one. And, you know, when they approached Clint Eastwood and they said, you know, can we use Clint Eastwood? Can we use your name? Uh, he was honored, you know, that he could be part of the Back to the Future trilogy. And, you know, it's things like this that they go into such detail and they really pay homage to a lot of those Westerns. It was very well thought out, more than the average person can imagine. It really shows the, the love that Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the two Bobs, 
who wrote, and of course Bob Zemeckis directed the film. Uh, the amount of work and the amount of love they put into this trilogy is really uh, incredible. So Richie, we're going to start off, we're going to talk about the story, we're going to go through the story point by point. Obviously if you haven't seen Back to the Future 3, uh, you may want to turn this off for now, watch the movie and then come back and listen to us uh, gush all over it because we love this movie so much. Uh, but uh, we're going to jump in here with things we loved about it, Richie, whether it be acting, whether it be production design, uh, score, you name it, uh, kind of as we go. So let's start off. When we last left our heroes in Back to the Future 2, um, uh, in 1955, Marty's still stuck there. He just saw Doc vanish with the DeLorean because it got struck by lightning. So now he's stuck in 1955. He doesn't know what's happening. Next thing you know, Joe Flaherty drives up uh, for the post office, and he has a registered letter for one Martin McFly. Uh, where he learns that uh, Emmett Brown was transported to 1885 and is trapped there because the DeLorean is broken. And he, uh, he saves it, uh, in a, in a, you know, puts it away, tells Marty exactly where to find it. Uh, but he says, don't come find me. I'm very happy in 1885. But as luck would have it, uh, he runs into a tombstone where he sees Emmett Brown died six days after sending that letter. So he has to go back to 1885 to save his friend. Um, we can't really talk about the beginning of this movie without talking about Back to the Future 2 a little bit and how brilliant that was, A, in showing off uh, the future, and B, just revisiting Back to the Future and, and showing it from a different perspective. I love that. So here we are with 1955 uh Doc Brown again, trying to get Marty off to the Old West. Uh, Richie, how did you think the movie kicked off? Now, in Back to the Future Part 2, it's pretty interesting because I don't know any other science fiction movies at that time that did time traveling and integrated a, a, a different installment of the movie franchise within that, that sequel. And it was very cool to see. But if you watch Back to the Future Part 2, and you get to the point where Doc Brown sends Marty back in time when after the lightning bolt hits a clock tower. If you stop it there on part two, and then you start it on back through um, Back to the Future Part Three, it plays seamlessly, and it is a very unique experience if you can watch it that way. When they filmed these two movies, they did the filming for a complete eleven-month run because they released part two in 89 they released part three in 90 they only wanted like six months between the two movies to watch each other so if you do get a chance to watch this if you watch part one you know you can watch that you can take some time but when you start part two sit yourself down and watch two and three all together as one picture because it flows so seamlessly it should have been as if it was one large movie and you can see so many foreshadows in part two for what you're going to see in part three and you see a lot of callbacks in part three to the second and the first movie do yourself that favor and allot yourself the time to watch them back to back because it was made so perfectly at the time and so rarely done so rarely done back in the late 80s where you're going to have part two and three play so seamlessly together it is a true joy to watch that I'm glad you brought up how uh, this movie was shot back to back with part two, because at the time that was kind of rare. That hadn't been done a lot. I know uh, the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers way back when was shot uh, similarly. Now it's kind of old hat, right? Like uh, Harry Potter was doing it. Lord of the Rings famously did it. And uh, just recently we had the two uh, Last Avengers movies were shot back to back. But at the time it was kind of a novel concept, but it made a ton of sense. And they, had, they worked on these movies for 11 months uh, to the point where uh, Bob Zemeckis was shooting this film and then going back to Burbank to supervise the sound mixes on two before it was released and then going right back to shooting a, a train sequence uh, in three. So we really got to give a lot of credit to Bob Zemeckis, uh, really a brilliant director. You don't hear a ton from him lately. I know the last big movie I saw of his was Flight with Denzel Washington not that long ago. But I remember back in the late 80s, he had Back to the Future, he had Romancing the Stone, he had Who Framed Roger Rabbit. A lot of big titles to his credit. 
and here uh, you know after the complexity of two it was really nice to get back to kind of a simpler story in three and here we have marty just going back to 1885 to try and rescue his friend um of course he uh, goes to 1885 he's in the middle of a, a cavalry pursuit of some uh, native americans uh, hides in a cave gets chased by a bear and ends up meeting his great great grandparents seamus and maggie mcfly and you mentioned callbacks here's another fantastic callback that you see in every back to the future movie and that's when he's laying in bed after being knocked out saying mom is that you and some version of lorraine or relative lorraine is there to, to help him out um just moments like this are one of the reasons why I love Back to the Future, because you have these callbacks in every single film. Yeah, you know, it's pretty interesting because you you see the mom, you know, playing like as Lorraine. She plays all the characters all the way through. And then you're waiting for Crispin Glover to, to come up on screen as his long distant relative. And obviously we don't see him. We, we have you know, Michael J. Fox playing Seamus McFly. And obviously there was things that was happening in Crispin Glovin's career at the time, like almost, you know, kicking David Letterman in the face live on, on air, <laughs> among other things, which really causes, uh, you know, they have to improvise, right? There's just the same reason why we had a different Jennifer in Back to the Future Part 2 than we did in Different One, you know, when you're talking about negotiations and contracts and whatnot. But when, when you're dealing with trying to create such epic pictures like this, and especially um, as we can all remember when Michael J. Fox was big in family ties and he wasn't allowed out of his contract to film Back to the Future, they had to film almost the entire movie at night after he was done you know, shooting for family ties. And now he's doing Back to the Future Part Two and Part Three on this big off period from family ties. They had to take advantage of all of that. But even by the time that they got to filming Part Three, you know, it had been so long since Back to the Future Part 1 that Michael J. Fox had forgot how to even skateboard at the time. So he was learning all of these things as they were as they were doing it on the go, right? But when, when he comes back in time, I should say, to get back on point, when he comes back in time and he is woken up, you know, he's back in good old 1885, it's seamless callbacks like this that you see in, in each installment that really make you fall in love with it you know why that that's why they were there and you can see that it's it's a thing that happens through all three movies i think it's it's a it's a mistake sometimes by directors that they try to make each installment so different from each other that they start to feel disjointed and you love seeing these themes you love seeing these calling cards it's like arnold schwarzenegger saying i'll be back you're waiting for those things to happen and it's great that they implemented those in part three Bob Zemeckis uh, really said it best when he said, when it comes to a sequel, people are looking for the same movie, just different. So you have to kind of ride that line of what's the same and what's different. These callbacks are a great way to keep it feeling like Back to the Future while making uh, the story a little bit different, a little more interesting to people. So um, Marty's now in 1885. He runs into Doc. Uh, Doc saves him again from uh, a tannin. This time it's Buford Mad Dog Tannin who's uh, considerably meaner, I think, than the other uh, versions of Biff that we've seen uh, in this film. Um, but Doc agrees to go back uh, to the future, back to the present with Marty, but they have to figure out a way to do it. And now, the way I gotta they do tell you, it... I, I got to tell you, sorry, I got I, I to tell you, you know, when, when he's introduced into the town, when, when Michael J. Fox is, is introduced to the town, he's lassoed by Buford Tannen, and he's strung up and he's being hung there. Uh, Michael J. Fox actually says this in his biography that he was actually hanging 
When you see his face turning beet red, that was a noose around his neck and he could not breathe at that time. At the same time, um, the actor that plays Buford Talon there, uh, Tannen Tompkins, he actually knows how to lasso and he did a lot of those own stunts himself. He does a lot of the horse riding stunts himself, does the lassoing himself. And it's interesting when, if you don't really consider it, like maybe you have to use fancy trick photography to have a stunt double come in and do all this stuff. But when you can see the actual actors doing these things, it makes it such a legit feeling, such an authentic feeling of a Western of what you're seeing. And because we got to see those things, it really comes through. I I know when I watched part three with my children, their eyes were as wide as dinner plates as Marty is swinging from the clock tower because it looks like he's being actually hung. It's because he is. It's because he's actually being, <laughs> he's actually hanging there, man. That's crazy. You know what? I'm glad you brought up uh, Thomas Wilson as uh, Buford Tannen because he's in all three movies, obviously. I think he's at his best in Back to the Future 3 uh, playing Buford Mad Dog Tannen. Uh, really a tremendous performance. And by all accounts, Thomas Wilson is the nicest guy in the world. So the fact that he's playing this jerk in all three of these movies always kind of bugged him. But he says it in the back, in the behind the scenes footage, like, if I'm not mean, the checks don't clear. So I yeah, got to keep doing it. <laughs> and, you know, it, you know, hats off to him for in part two when he had to play the old Biff Tannen that's rich like a Donald Trump character. But then he also mm-hmm. had to go back and play the 1955 version of himself as well as Grandpa Biff. And he had to play three different actors all at the same time. And he does it so seamlessly. It's fantastic to watch. Yeah. Speaking of acting, of course, Michael J. Fox is always fantastic as Marty. Uh, Christopher Lloyd is Doc Brown. You love seeing these guys together. They make a perfect pair. Uh, but we have the addition of uh, Mary Steenburgen in this film as uh, Clara Clayton. And uh, as they're scouting out uh, the train that's supposed to push the DeLorean to 88 miles an hour, they run into Clara Clayton and actually prevent her from falling into a ravine uh, that used to be called Clayton Ravine, uh, eventually becomes uh, Eastwood Ravine as well. Uh, but... Uh, jump ahead of myself a little bit but uh, Kara Clayton uh, falls in love with Emmett Brown and I really love the fact that now you know Back to the Future 1 in a lot of ways was George McFly's story Back to the Future 2 was just a mismatch of everything Back to the Future 3 is really Doc Brown's story and he really gets the uh, the uh, arc in this film and uh, the love interest and the emotional weight and all that and it was really nice to see Christopher Lloyd with a little more to do in this film you know it's really interesting that we talked a lot about this on the screening room show that we do how I get sick of superhero movies, how it's always origin story after origin story after origin story. The last thing that we would have needed is a Doc Brown origin story. We don't need an origin story of Doc Brown. We can have a story that picks up in the middle of this epic saga with him and Marty McFly, and let's see what plays out in Doc Brown's life from that point forward. And that's exactly what we got to see here too. And you know, you talk about the perfect casting because Clara is the perfect match for Dr. Emmett Brown in look, in personality, in the way that she moves and talks. And they wrote that role for her and she comes in and delivers and nails it. And I I can't even imagine a different actor stepping into those shoes and playing that part because, I mean, it really was meant for her and and she just really over delivers, in my opinion. And you really have that wonderful scene between her and Doc Brown uh, at the festival. A lot of great moments in that festival. Of course, if you're a Back to the Future fan, you see 
Marty and Doc getting their picture taken in front of the clock that's going up on the clock tower. This iconic shot that just is, is so wonderful. Uh, one of my favorite um, cameos in the film is by the band ZZ Top, one of my favorite bands. They, they play the band playing at the festival. And one of my favorite behind the scenes stories of Back to the Future 3 is um, a camera broke at one point. So they had to take a break while they were shooting that festival scene. And uh, Michael J. Fox just went to the band and requested a song and they played the song. When they were done, somebody else requested another song and then another, then another, to the point where they were playing for like two hours. And finally, somebody went to Bob Zemeckis and said, did we ever get that camera fixed? And he's like, oh, it was fixed hours ago, but I didn't want to break up the party. Like, this is great. So they just ended up playing music all night. So kind of a lost day shooting, but everybody had a great time. You know, it's pretty fantastic that you say that because ZZ Top was just such a fantastic group when they write the song Double Back, which is what you hear during that square dance. It's so iconic that you don't think of anything else aside from Back to the Future Part Part 3. As a professional DJ, when I've done some weddings for a fan that loves Back to the Future, and after a country song, you can sneak in the song Double Back, and everyone is still dancing because it's such a good two-step and song to dance to, you know that it's a winning song. And the Back to the Future trilogy has always been known for this. I mean, one of the big reasons uh, of the success of Back to the Future was having Huey Lewis playing The Power of Love, which you hear right at the start of Back to the Future Part 1. You also hear at the end of Back to the Future Part 3. But the the music, the soundtrack, as, as well as the score, which is absolutely amazing. It's so iconic, right? When you have those, the, uh, those two at the top of their games, you're going to have a winning combination. So obviously, if someone says, how can you have... Um, a soundtrack of, of, of different popular songs really elevate that mood and that level. Well, you take one of the top uh, rockabilly bands of our time and you let them perform a song on stage the way they do it with their own look. And it, it just adds so much depth to that movie. You, you have to really step back and appreciate that. You're absolutely right. And talking about the music, this is one of the highlights for me. Uh, Alan Silvestri is one of my favorite composers. He doesn't get talked a lot nowadays you hear about uh of course john williams is the legend uh michael Jean kino is a very hot uh, composer right now uh alexander Desplat, uh guys like that but alan silvestri is still an incredible composer and his work last year on vendor's endgame i thought was absolutely phenomenal but he's done uh, uh forrest gump uh, among other things and of course the back to the future series i think is is one of the best scores i've ever heard and it just fits this movie like a glove even that little uh tinkling you hear before the score that that, that kind of sets the the score in motion just perfect little notches like that i really wanted to give a, a a shout out and point out the great work of alan silvestri for years i had that tone as my text receiving it <laughs> <laughs> until my wife made me t- turn it off and uh <laughs> It, it is so iconic and that once again is a throwback to hollywood history where he's pulling from these great movies that, that you know and that's what everything is built on you're inspired from other great works and when you can put that into these movies you're going to have a better product right because we're standing on the shoulders of giants and you can see that throughout all of back to the future part three when they do callbacks ex- example at the scene when they're dancing and Marty McFly throws the pie plate that says Frisbee on it, that's actually how Frisbee was invented. It was a pie plate company that kids would toss around on the college campus, and Frisbee ended up becoming a sport out of a simple kitchen um, you know, utensil thing. 
and it, it's interesting to think that they would go to that distance to, to, you know, to really add all these different elements and these Easter eggs in a movie. But you have to expect that when you're talking time travel, when you're talking sci-fi, when you're talking about these things, people are looking for all those little nuances and there's ones every single step of the way throughout this movie. So you have to keep your eyes open because every single time you watch it, you're going to see something new. And it's really a thankless task to do a time travel movie because it's going to get so heavily scrutinized. Everybody's going to try and pick it apart, try and find the, where the time travel doesn't work, find the plot holes. Um, that never, ever bothers me when I'm watching Back to the Future 3 or any of the Back to the Futures for that matter, just because the characters are great and the story is great and the music is great. The set design is great. Dean Cundy, who shot these movies, uh, an amazing cinematographer who did uh, Jurassic Park. He did uh, quite a few of the uh, Spielberg films. Um, these movies look amazing, and he always wanted to shoot a Western. And you can tell because the Western scenes of this film are shot as good as any Western I think I've ever seen. Yeah, you know what? It has everything. It's got it's got the the cowboys, the horse riding, the lassoing. It's got the guns. It's got the shoot 'em ups. It's got the chuck wagons. It's got the trains. You can go on and on about every single Western trope that you can think of, and it's in these movies. The shootout scene alone is one thing that can really, um, like like with my eight-year-old son, he was hooked into it. He was hooked, you know, the, the whole idea of a shootout being in Westerns, which they foreshadow in Back to the Future Part Two for what's going to happen in Part Three because they know what's coming. But it, it's it's really tying together such a great Western movie and making it seem like not such a Western movie uh, because it is such a sci-fi one. I mean, think about all the other Western sci-fi crossovers. There's not a lot out there that are good. I mean, aside from Westworld, right? Cowboys and Aliens was horrible, but they pull it off in Back to the Future Part 3, right? And it has such things when Doc Brown is in the bar at the end of the movie and he's talking about what the future is going to be like. And he explains that in the future, people are going to run for fun. And the old drunk says, <laughs> run for fun? What's the point of that? And I think about it all the time. And it's a great line that I quote all the time. But if you really were in the future and you went back to 1885 and now you're going to try to explain to everyone what the future is like, how are they going to handle that? And you know what? They really show that really well in a quick scene in, in part three here. And you know what? And uh, that takes us to the moment in the film where uh, Doc Brown realizes he's in love with Clara. And he has to tell her and try and convince her that he's from the future. Obviously, she doesn't buy it. And uh, that, that, that kind of leads to the dark uh, part of the film. But the part I really liked about this moment of the story is that Doc and Marty kind of reverse roles. And that Doc is now, uh, you know, making the mistakes and, and being a little foolhardy where Marty is the one who's saying, remember, you're a scientist. We have to leave. This is what we have to do, have to get done. So it's a nice little uh, flip of roles that I thought was really uh, nice here in the middle of the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you even hear Marty McFly saying, great Scott, and Doc Brown says, this is heavy. Right. They, I mean, it's a complete 180. And we've talked about this in the past, about how for, you know, if you follow the laws of movies, this movie should not work. When you have Marty McFly, he's supposed to grow, he's supposed to learn something from the movie, and he doesn't. I mean, talking back to the future part one. And in, in some sense of the word, Doc Brown doesn't really either, either. I mean, the theme of this movie is love, about how love prevails, and it, it definitely is, and you'll do anything for love. But when you, it really makes you wonder how, throughout the entire trilogy, he says, you can't mess up the space-time continuum. You can't fall in love with someone from the past. And ultimately, that that is what happens, spoiler alert. But I mean, 
it, it it shouldn't work conventionally as a movie you put it on paper it really shouldn't work and it does and it works so well and you get very invested with it and you fall in love with all the characters i think that's the one of the reason why it works so well this is christopher lloyd's top movie in my opinion i, I can't even think of a movie better than this one that he was in because if someone said, uh, name a character that Christopher Lloyd played, I don't hearken back to Taxi when he was on TV. I mm. automatically think Doc Brown and part three is his movie and and he knocks it out of the park. Yep, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so now we have uh, the plan to get back to 1985 is they're going to get the DeLorean, they're going to put it on a train track and they're going to get a steam engine and they're going to make up some magic bricks that are going to get this sucker to push the DeLorean to 88 miles an hour before they run out of track because the bridge isn't even done yet. So now you have the, all that dramatic tension of how they're going to get back to 1985, just like in the first film, uh, expertly done but before that um they created this uh, little thing in the sequels where marty all of a sudden has a problem with people calling him chicken or yellow uh you know, they had to give him this character flaw so they could have a little bit of this moment where he overcomes that uh, to kind of complete his arc and he does that in this film where uh he accepts a duel with uh, buford tannen and um he realizes that this is maybe you know stupid and uh, there's maybe a better way to do it and he remembered back to a film uh, starring Clint Eastwood, who is his alias in this film, where he put, uh, you know, that part of the oven over top of the uh, over top of his chest and put it on and uh, put it underneath his poncho so that when he got shot, uh, it acted, you know, deflected the bullet. So a uh, nice little arc there for, for Marty McFly from two and three. This didn't really involve one at all because it wasn't a part of Back to the Future one, but you get to see him grow a little bit because, uh, of course, uh, Doc tells him that, you know, he busts up his hand in a car accident and he can't play rock and roll anymore, which was his only, you know, escape. Uh, so now by doing this, he kind of has saved his future as well. So we're tying up loose ends kind of as we go. And Marty's uh, is tied up kind of nicely here with the Buford uh, Mad Dog Tannen duel. Well, in a way, you know, he kind of grows because in Back to the Future Part Two, he is now the father that what we saw Crispin Glover play, Marty McFly's father in Back to the Future Part One. And if you can remember at the start of that movie, it starts off that that Biff Tannen crashed his car and he's in the house and he's bu bullying him around. Even as a full-grown adult, as a father and a parent, there's still a bully in his life. And we see this happen with Marty now that he's the father in Back to the Future Part 2 where Needles is bullying him into swiping his card, you know, because the Jits is never going to be monitoring, but he bullies <laughs> himself into it to that point. And now in Part 3, Needles is still that bully and Marty McFly has to overcome that and face his fear and learn how to change that course of action. And I'm sure if you saw Back to the Future Part 4, Needles would be the guy outside, you know, buffing his car, buffing his new truck, because <laughs> that cycle continues, right? But it's that time where he has to step up, where he has taken on the role of that kind of Crispin Glover character, where he's got that character flaw and he has to overcome it. And it works so well with, with Crispin Glover's character. Now Michael J. Fox's character goes through the same motions and it works so well because they twisted it just enough to make it seem like it's brand new. Now, Richie, you can't have a Western uh, without a, a train sequence or a train robbery even. And we have uh, Marty and Doc taking over a train uh, to get the DeLorean up to 80 miles an hour. There's a great line where he has the gun on the conductor and the conductor says, is this a robbery? And Doc says, no, it's a science experiment. Uh, but of course, Claire at this time realizes that she's in love with Doc. She can't live without him. She believes him. She wants to go with him. She rides her horse down there. Uh, a great, great, tremendously directed sequence uh, with, with that train 
and trying to get the DeLorean up to 88 and a lot of tension in that in that uh, scene we're not going to talk too much about that because I want people to go watch it but what happens is of course Marty is sent back to the future and uh, Doc is stuck in 1885 with his beloved Clara uh, floating away on the hoverboard in that fantastic image you see as they leave the train um, really just a tremendous uh, way to ramp up the action in the third act and start this denouement that we're going to get where everything kind of wraps up for the characters but that whole train sequence uh, just absolutely fantastic and probably my favorite sequence in all of Back to the Future. Yeah, you know, it, they invested a lot of work to do this right. And that's what you have to do. I mean, you can't phone it in when you, this is the big climax of, of the story. And, you know, it, it's funny that you that you quote that. Is this a train robbery? No, um, it's a science experiment. I say science experiment anytime someone walks up to me and they says, is this a whatever? I say, no, it's a science experiment. <laughs> it, it, it works for everything. Try it. Try it the next time someone does it. Um, but yeah, you know what? They they, they had, the, it, you know, the replica, this train that they have built, especially for this movie, and it looks so well. The look of the train is so important, you know, to really get you get yourself into this, this mode, right? And then when you have the modifications of the DeLorean that's sitting on the track, it really makes you think that, you know, this is something a scientist would actually do. How do you get it up to 88 miles per hour? How do you get the thing to go into the future? And obviously, the dramatic ending of it as it transports into the future, seamlessly done once again. And I mean, it ties up all the loose ends, answers pretty much all the questions that you're wondering, but such a great visual back to back to back. And when you really watch that and you really think that you're getting like a, a double bang for your buck, this doesn't happen in every single movie and it doesn't happen by accident. It was very well thought out and very well executed. And another uh, byproduct of maybe shooting these back to back, it, it was just one big script is that Marty's back in 1985, uh, he gets Jennifer again, and he gets to that moment where he's in that instance where he's goaded into that race with needles. And instead of racing needles and being called chicken, uh, you know, he just lets needles go and almost gets hit by the train and says, you know what, it's not even worth it. And you see that moment, there's that great uh, callback to Back to the Future too, where Jennifer took that fax off the wall that said, you're fired. And she brought it with her to 85 and she pulled that out and looked at it and it disappeared. So all that meant was that now their future is unwritten. And that's a tremendous way to leave this uh, leave this story. But we have one little moment left and that's when uh, all of a sudden this train shows up with Doc and Clara and their two sons, Jules and Vern. Uh, of course, he figured out how to get a train and turn it into a time machine. Uh, already sent it to the future so they could get the Mr. Fusion put on it and the, and the flying and all that. But um, just a nice little ending with those two characters. I really wanted this trilogy to end with Marty and Doc, uh, and it does. And there's some tremendous moments, and he gives them the picture of them at the clock tower. Very meaningful moment. Um, they really could not have wrapped up this entire trilogy any better than they did with Doc and Marty at the end. Yeah, you know, it, it, was, it was a great way to finish it off. Great way to get Jules Verne in there. Obviously, inspiration for time travel, as Doc explains earlier in the film. And you know, I, I honestly think that when you're talking about time travel, it's it's tough to wrap your head about how long all of this happened in the actual timeline. But you don't, like you said before, you don't get caught up in it because I mean, when you're talking science fiction and actual time travel and different timelines, you can pick pieces apart, you can pick out plot holes. But by the time you get to this, it's all gone because it's all happened so fast and it's gotten there in such a fun way. Obviously, movies like, say, Lord of the Rings, for example, 
gets panned because there's a lot of slow moments, a lot of walking time, a lot of mm-hmm. things where nothing's really happening. That doesn't happen in Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3, right? They didn't need to take part three and turn that into two more movies, right? Everything happens so fast and the beats happen so quickly that by the time you're to the end, you're still wanting more and you just watch three Back to the Future movies. Obviously, they're not making a Back to the Future 4. I don't think they should. I think they leave it as it is. If they need to recreate something else, you know, they could recreate something brand new, maybe have a Back to the Future um, theme to it, but but leave this one how it is. It ended off not just part three, but it ended off part one and two as well. And that's why I put it right up there with one of the greatest sequels of all time. I know you said two was up there for you. I would place this one just for me a little bit higher than two. I think this is one of the greatest sequels of all time because of the way they wrapped everything up. And um, just don't, don't, don't focus on the time travel because ultimately that doesn't matter. And that's one of my biggest gripes about uh, pop culture nowadays and the way people criticize, uh, you know, TV shows and books and movies and, and, and everything. Uh, they want to pick little holes and everything. Well, you know, you really couldn't do this. And it just, it doesn't matter. It's like that scene in Austin Powers where, uh, where the uh, Basil Exposition says, you know what, just don't worry about the time travel. And looks in the camera and says, and you shouldn't worry about it either. Just have fun. Because that's what <laughs> movies are supposed to do, right? Just have fun. Well, absolutely. You know what? It's good enough for a Back to the Future science fiction movie to say, this is the flux capacitor. It's what makes time travel possible. You have to get up to 88 miles per hour and you'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Throw one. You know, one point eight gigawatts in there as well, too. You can throw that one in there, right? Yeah. But, but I no, mean, you're exactly right. You don't need to 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 know the science behind a flux capacitor. You don't need to know that. All you need to know is that they're jumping around. They're trying to sort out their own timelines so that they can make sure that everything's back to normal. And they just don't, you know, Marty just doesn't want his kids to be assholes, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it wraps up perfect. Um, you talked about the, the prospect for, for Robert Zemeckis uh, always believed, and I believe still does, that uh, there's there's drama in threes. You know, it's a three-act structure for a reason. There's three-act plays for a reason. Uh, it, it's a tense number. Four is a very calm number. It's an even number. It, it's not as exciting, right? Look at Indiana Jones. The, the fourth one is probably the worst one out of all of them, but... Back to the Future 3 had a definite beginning, middle, and end, and it ended, and that's the end of it. And we'll never see another Back to the Future, God willing, because it's perfect. If I want to see Back to the Future, I pop it back in, get the kids, grab some popcorn, and have a fantastic time at the movies. Now, this movie, Richie, when it first came out, uh, 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's only like 50% on on Metacritic. It's the lowest uh, grossing of the Back to the Futures. It only pulled in about $87 million domestically, uh, 246 worldwide. Um, a lot of people don't consider this up to par with one and two. And I, I can't disagree hard enough. I think it's right up there with them. And it may just be my favorite of the three. Where does it rank for you? This is number two for me. I still love the original more than anything. Um, I like, I do like part three, maybe a little bit better than part two, just because there is such a difference in genre. I mean, you're talking about going to a Western, um, you know, part two, part two, there was a lot of things, great things that happened. And, you know, if you think about this, if they were to make part one, they say, oh, there's such great success. All right, let's make part two. And we're just going to leave it at that. There's no way that they could have tied it in as seamlessly as they could with part three. And you need to have all that foreshadowing to happen with part two to go into part three. So I really can't understand 
why people would have gone to part two and then not have gone to part three. And the only thing that I can think of is that at the time, it might have been a little bit too confusing, a little bit too complicated, jumping around, wondering, I don't understand these alternate timelines because let's face it, at that time, the idea and concept of an alternate timeline was not as well and familiar known as, as what it is now. Everybody knows timelines. Everybody knows all these different universes. And I mean, let's let's face it. If you had a, game, a movie like Avengers Endgame back in 1989, it would not have worked because it would have been too complicated and confusing for the mass public, for the majority of the public. Only, you know, guys like us, like like comic book guys or, or movie guys or, or sci-fi guys would definitely understand that. And if it's too sci-fi for that, it's not going to bring them out. The other thing, too, is is with part three, it, when you're switching genres, when you're switching from almost like a comedy sci-fi movie and then you're going into a Western, you're probably going to lose a lot of your audience because that first audience didn't sign up to get invested with the Western. And the Western people are saying like, well, I didn't watch part one and part two. I'm definitely not going to go and watch part three because that means I'd have to go and watch a sci-fi film before I could watch my favorite Western film. So there is big reasons why, you know, it didn't get as many people out. There's big reasons why it didn't gross as well. When you're trying to cross genres, introduce people into things that they're not originally interested in, you're not going to have a successful sales. But in my personal opinion, it's the best thing for anybody who's never watched a Western before, because now they can go and watch a Western, they can enjoy it. Same thing with people who are not into science fiction, if they've only watched old Westerns, now they can give sci-fi a chance and it's gonna be opening up doors for people so they can watch more movies they enjoy. And it's great for families. That's the big thing with Back to the Future. You can sit down with your kids. My kids are 12 and 8. They love these movies. I know your kids watched them, loved them as well. Uh, it's really accessible to everyone. I recommend everybody go watch all these movies, but watch three with an open mind. And don't go into it thinking, well, I know third is the worst one out of the three. No, watch, watch it with an open mind. You're going to pick out a lot of stuff that you loved in it, just like Richie and I did tonight. Uh, was there anything, Richie, uh, for you that we uh, missed when talking about how much we love Back to the Future 3? You know what? I mean, when you think about all the history that this trilogy went through, sponsored by Pepsi, you know, the Nike yeah. shoes, um, Michael J. Fox's classic lines, the, all the different shots, you know, it was made out of a DeLorean. When you think about everything that went into this movie, about how many so different, so many iconic pieces are in this movie, it's hard to actually think of, of, of a better, well-rounded trilogy I really can't think of one. If you're talking about just three movies, one, two, and three, and that's it, this is the top of the heap. You know, I agree with you totally. Uh, Back to the Future 3, uh, a fantastic end to a fantastic trilogy that really doesn't get enough credit. It's one of the best trilogies ever made, as far as I'm concerned, and I know I can speak uh, pretty clearly for you on that one too, my friend. Uh, Richie, Roy, where can the people find you online? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, that kind of thing? I live on Facebook mostly. Check me out on big-time game shows also magician richie roy and definitely hey man check us out on the screening room on access 7 where we talk about movies all the time but i'm around and i love talking about movies so hopefully i can be on again Corey. this was great it absolutely was do you got anything coming up that you want to uh, promote i know it's kind of tough in the uh, age of covid when you're an entertainer who's used to playing the big big rooms and big crowds uh, but you got anything uh, happening right now you want to talk about Really excited that in July, we're going to be debuting a brand new online interactive game show. It's kind of like Fear Factor mixed with Minutewinit, except for the people at home get to vote on what the contestants have to do while they're in studio. 
So everybody that's watching on Facebook, they get to play along and they decide the fate on how these people have to win their money. Split Decision starts in July on Facebook, big time game shows. Check it out. I'm really looking forward to it. Hope you guys can join in. No matter where you're listening in the world, folks, you can check out big, uh, big time game shows live on Facebook and take part in that uh, tremendous game. And now you just finished up a season of big time live where anybody from all over uh, the world could participate in a trivia show. And now you're going in this direction. It sounds like a fantastic idea. I can't wait to play along. Uh, on behalf of my guest and good friend, Richie Roy, uh, my name is Corey Morissette. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CD Morissette. And of course, right here as part of the Feeding the Monster podcast, I'll be a part of uh, Are We Wearing Pants? every friday and you can catch us right here on the power of positive geeking on thursdays so thank you again for listening and we will see you next time this is pool bear from pool talk and you know when i'm not talking about pool i like to listen to other people talk And you know who I really like to listen to is Thomas and John and Corey and Mark and Jeff on Are We Wearing Pants on the Feeding the Monster podcast feed. It's so funny. It's one of my favorite shows. I like it more than honey. And it even makes Eeyore smile.